Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about living a meaningful life, partly in terms of serving others. But we're going to talk about what it's actually been like on the ground in Ukraine, as well as a few other things that you will hear. I'd like to welcome back to the show a friend of mine, Jimmy. Welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> so you were last on the show when you've been on the show a couple of times where we have been talking about Venezuela. And for any uninitiated listeners, you have an extensive amount of experience working on the ground, providing relief in Venezuela, providing relief supplies, disaster supplies, as well as being involved in other charitable works and Christian ministry works in the nation of Venezuela. However, recently you traded out that disaster zone and you spent some time in an active war zone in Ukraine. And then we'll get to some of your other more recent adventures. But I'd like to talk about your experiences in Ukraine. Tell us, please, how did you wind up in Ukraine and what is happening on the ground? What did you observe? What was it like living in Ukraine recently? Well, um, the war in Ukraine started on January 24th, and then a week later after the war started, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, and he said, hey, we're looking for volunteers to to come and, and help in Venezuela, and you definitely qualify for for coming up and, and helping out. Now, would you like to apply? And then I said, well, I'm in Venezuela right now. I have to talk to my board. And so I phoned my board at, at the at the, my, my my the group of people that I'm accounted to in Venezuela, and I said, you know, I'm being asked to volunteer as a as a rescue technician and as a medic. Uh, although I'm not a medic, but I have so I have training on that, some training on that. Uh, um, so they said, please go. <laughs> we we're happy that to support you and 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 pray for you. So I phoned my friend back and and then and uh, like four or five, two or three days later, I don't know, I was on a plane to 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 Ukraine, and then I arrived there. I think I arrived there um, ten days, ten eleven days after the war had started. You began in Poland, right? You were doing some work in Poland, and then you did eventually go with a convoy into Ukraine proper. Yes, yes. First, we, I started off in, in the, at the border between Poland and Ukraine. I was stationed in a place where where we were helping out refugees uh, cross the border. There were thousands of them. Like one night we counted, well, I didn't count them, but they told me that 74,000 people had crossed and some some of them needed help. Some I was doing triage, uh, meaning helping people to assess their medical needs. I was doing also I was doing all sorts of things, including helping them to with their luggage or or just sometimes the, their cars would break down in the middle of the road and it was very cold, incredible cold, minus twelve one night, and so we had to go and just pick them up, rescue them, and then take them to to the border. Tell tell us what tell us some of the stories. Why were people fleeing, and and what was going? What was happening when they were making that decision? 
Well, uh, that time when I got there, they, they they were coming from all over the west and north of Ukraine, and people uh, at that time they were certain, and we were certain that uh, the the Russians were going to take over the whole country. There was no question about it. So people were naturally fleeing and and uh, to, uh, looking. Uh, trying to to get out of there, and uh, because it was a sure thing that uh, with 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 countless tanks and and army personnel just surrounding Kiev and having having taken all the northern part of Kiev, it was a sure thing. It was just a matter of time before before the 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 Russians would uh, come into Kiev and and then. And then, of course, once Kiev was taken, maybe everybody felt that the whole city was going to fall down. The whole country, I'm sorry, right, was going right. to go down. So over the years, we've talked a lot about refugees, and you have been involved in many different um, disasters where there have been refugees. You worked in with the Red Cross in Chile after the big earthquake there. You volunteered for several years in Haiti after the earthquake there. Recently, over the last few years, you have spent huge amounts of time volunteering at in Colombia and uh, Venezuela at the border there. In fact, we've worked with listeners of the show who've donated money and, and done relief for even several mi- mi- ministries that specifically work with refugees in uh, coming out of Venezuela into Colombia. And then you've told me that you've recent, recently, after the, the pandemic started, then you started to work with and see refugees going from Colombia back into Venezuela, people heading home. And now, of course, you've been on the border between Poland and Ukraine. What did you, how do you compare these different refugee movements? If you were to compare and contrast the Venezuela Colombia border as compared to the Ukraine Poland border, what, what did you observe? Um, yeah, what, what a question. Interesting. Uh, well, the first, you could see the desperation for people to, to leave uh, and living with re- really nothing, nothing, because they cannot carry much when they leave. And uh, you could compare also the the family separation. I saw a lot of men. Men, for example, cannot leave Ukraine, and um, and so they were just. I saw a lot of men dropping off their families at the border, and seeing seeing goodbye. Like we we talking not not ten twenty. We talking hundreds of them just drop driving their cars or just passing by. Um, that didn't happen in Venezuela when I saw it. I saw the whole families, the father and the mother, and uh, and the whole family crossing and escaping. But Venezuela, but Ukraine was different because men were not allowed to leave the country, or still not allowed to. They expected that they would volunteer for for fighting in the war. So that's that was probably what. Uh, more than what I can compare, I could tell you the differences. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know you. I know I'm twisting the question, and I ask for forgiveness. But uh, the other thing was the cold. I remember in in Venezuela, uh, it was the rain because sometimes they had, we had to halt and cross the river. And uh, when the when the river was was way up, we had to well, we had to put ropes and and uh, 
and bridges and, and be there waiting for them or just bring sh shelter to the soccer fields where they were sleeping when they accounted almost 2,000 people sleeping in the, in the soccer field. And then in, in, in Ukraine, it was the cold. It was bitter cold. And, and so we had to have blankets and, and we had to be ready, especially because the, the borders sometimes was, were slow in processing all refugees that were coming through. So they had to stay for three, four, five hours. And it was one night, it was 12. Uh, minus 12 is, um, I, don't, I don't know, probably zero on your, on your scale Fahrenheit. Were the Polish border, how, how strict were the Polish border officials on the documentation of fleeing Ukrainian refugees? I'm uh, sorry, the question, um, you had to work it out again. So how strict were the Polish border officials on the paperwork requirements for fleeing Ukrainians? Were they allowing people to come across with expired passports? Were they allowing people to come in with no documentation? Or did they did they make sure that everyone had to have the proper international passports? How did they handle that? No, no, just uh, they had, um, I think in, 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 in Ukraine, people, every person gets a passport. Uh, I think it's uh, the law in in. in 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 Ukraine, and, uh, you 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 have to your ID is your passport. So everybody seemed to have one, uh, so except uh, some people didn't. Did, I saw them just showing a little piece of paper, but nobody was rejected for lack of papers. Definitely, okay. nobody was. Uh, if somebody if somebody didn't have a dog, I never saw people rejected. The only people that I saw rejected was people that had some uh, spending. I don't know, but I, I, helped, I did help very few people uh, having to return because they were missing something. And I never understood what they were missing, but there, there were very few. For example, out of 74,000, probably one or two or three were rejected. So as people were coming across the border, what were they doing for accommodation? Were they immediately getting on a train and heading further into Europe? Were they camping on the streets? Were, were locals taking them in? How were they, how were they being housed? At the border where I was, uh, they, they had a very large reception center. I think they were capable of handling up to five, 6,000 people per night. So... Uh, so they would, and then buses were coming from all over Europe to pick them up, or they could take the train uh, to wherever they wanted to go. Uh, so they were very, I was surprised how efficient the Polish government was with handling the tremendous amount of refugees. And uh, we're talking uh, gazillions, millions, <laughs> literally millions of them, actually. Right. That had to be processed very quickly. So they, I'm very, I was very impressed with with how, you know, in it was it was chaotic, but but there was some sense of order in 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 the in the passing through of the refugees. Right. In a moment, we'll talk about your experiences inside Ukraine, but I want to dwell on this topic of becoming a refugee. I teach a course called <laughs> International Escape Plan. And part of it is in connection with Ukraine. And I basically, uh, basic, I basically, after years of watching disasters, 
I have observed that one of the best ways to survive and thrive in a disaster is by not being physically present where the disaster is located. So any Venezuelan who fled Venezuela and and started living in Miami was able to avoid the worst of the collapse in Venezuela. Any Ukrainian who fled in the weeks prior to the invasion by Russia and went to another place was able to avoid some of the worst effects of the invasion. And so I teach a whole a whole course on this um, available at internationalescapeplan.com and I basically talk about how if you have if you can do nothing else, if you can prepare a passport and a credit card so you have money to spend and a cell phone, you can get out and so you should prepare for that. Last time you were on, we talked about Venezuela, and we discussed the preparations that you would make if you knew you were going to live in a Venezuelan-style economic crisis. Now I want to ask you, if you knew that you were going to become a Ukrainian-style refugee fleeing at the last minute across the Polish border while the Russian army is invading, what kind of preparations would you make in advance to be prepared for that kind of disaster scenario? Yeah, uh, definitely the passport would be a plus, and an international credit card, um, uh, some cash, some cash uh, uh, available. Um, I would have a, a ready, ready to go uh, backpack with all the all the basics, um, uh, uh, all the survival basic things that we need now today in our today's world. Uh, uh, as <laughs> as ironic as I as it may sound, uh, having a, a charger, a phone charger, <laughs> as simple as it is, I notice a lot of people that are coming in and and borrowing or asking for a phone charger, and I thought, I I guess they were not prepared. So there's simple things that 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 uh, uh, it's a list of of things to run with in case in case I have to leave. And um, and then the problem is I don't think people understood, even though they could see all the signs that things are going to, I was, we're going not to go well in Ukraine. They were still confident that that nothing would happen to them. No, there was not going to be an invasion, mainly because uh, Russia kept saying that there was not, they, they, they were not planning such a thing. And I think the Ukrainians trusted that that. The invasion was not going to happen, and when it did happen, um, uh, they were not prepared. Many of them were not prepared, and I could tell you that uh, winter clothing—that uh, uh, was, was a most. Some, some were we had to help them because they were suffering from hypothermia in the middle of the winter. So either they didn't grab, or maybe they escaped in the middle of the night. And I didn't ask, them, but uh, but uh, I think you had to. After that, I kept my 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 backpack with everything my the basics with me all the time. I, I in fact my escape backpack I use it for the whole time as my pillow because in case I said I had to run or missile attack or or which happened to me several times, so in case I had to run, I I, I slept with my back my run backpack uh, most of the time. 
Do you think that, so obviously winter clothing, winter coats, etc., was important. Do you think that if somebody had had uh, things like camping gear, backpacking tents, things like that, do you think that would have been helpful or would it have been more of a hindrance in that scenario because it was too much luggage, too bulky, and people could go and stay in hotels? Oh no 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 no! You cannot you cannot possibly camp in in Ukraine. The the temperatures were 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 just incredibly cold. I I did camp uh, one time uh, out of necessity, and, and in the middle of the night I, I ran for for alarm <laughs> because <laughs> they just uh, impossible. Uh, maybe now that it's summertime, maybe you could think on camping equipment. In fact, I have my camping equipment with me. I always, I, 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 I have two two backpacks. One, one is my my with my camping equipment, and the other one is with my run supplies, uh, runaway supplies. And uh, but uh, uh, I'm going to take it back when I go back, um, and in ten days, I'm going to I will take my camping equipment with me. With regard to money, was the financial system working for, could, for example, if the Ukrainians were fleeing, were they able to access their bank accounts, get money out so they could pay for their fares across Europe? Or did you observe any problems in the local financial system? No, the system was working um, quite well. I was surprised that you could even get money, uh, Ukrainian money from from the cash machine in 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 the Ukraine, and that never stopped working, uh, which was very impressive because you would expect that the banking system would collapse. It didn't. It kept it kept going. The the problem is, I think they most people did not have the money uh, uh, to spare. Say, okay, I'm going to take so 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 much money. Uh, but, but the other thing was that the, 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 the Europeans were so, so well, they, they did an outstanding job. Like people didn't need to pay. The trains were free. The, the, the shelters, there was food. And they, I'm, again, I'm going to reiterate, I, I was very impressed with the, I was with the, Pol, the Poland side. I was very impressed the way they, they handled the whole situation. There's this idea that in certain disaster times when you have to flee, that having alternative forms of money, for example, having a valuable piece of jewelry or a gold coin can be helpful to bribe a border guard to let you out. Also, there were reports with Bitcoin. Uh, there were several tweet threads that I archived while watching the situation in Ukraine where people were saying, I'm fleeing Ukraine, and the only thing that would work for me was Bitcoin, and I used that to get out. Did you personally observe uh, anything like that, or did you hear any stories for personally from anybody that used anything other than just the normal day-to-day -day banking system uh, as part of their escape plan? Not really, um, because... Um I, I even I, I was even able to use my credit card in in the Ukraine, which all of that surprised me. And uh, I, I could use my credit card, my debit card. I could use my my my. Uh, um, the, I could I could exchange U.S. dollars. I could or or euros. Um, um, no, it's it's it, it. Ukraine is a very situation because somewhere somehow the country is not 
did not did not even though amazingly enough it, it just it, it was supposed to collapse and it didn't even in i was expecting the electricity to go off fuel shortages although there is some fuel shortages you could still travel around and so the the country during the first weeks and even up to now um, when i left uh, it hold it it hold it very very well it didn't it was not like venezuela everything slowly slowly collapsed and then suddenly they had a complete collapse banking schools everything transportation gas everything collapsed but in, but in ukraine uh, everything kept well Kiev did, did have some issues. When I got there, they were just to reopen, but uh, they were they, they they were managing very well, and they still managing very well, which is quite surprising because, I mean, they were facing the one of the largest army in the world. You have extensive experience working in in an economic collapse, right? You have experience of going to Venezuela and, and trading a ten a $5 U.S. bill for a backpack full of Venezuelan banknotes. You have experience knowing that uh, the inflation is so bad that you can't even take 20s and 50s because no one has enough money to change it. So you have experience in both kinds of economies. What I'd like to ask, and the reason I'm asking this is because a lot of most of my listeners are from the United States, and people are always trying to figure out, well, if there were a collapse in the United States, what would that look like? And years ago, I used to think, oh, well, it would look like Venezuela. I'm now convinced that it would not look like Venezuela. And I think that your recent experience in Ukraine is a good piece of data to fit in to that analysis. So here's my question. Why do you think it was so different or it is so different in Ukraine versus Venezuela. What are the things that, that what are the, what are the differences between the, the kinds of crisis that each country is facing that led to Venezuela having virtually no electricity, Venezuela having a collapsed financial system, but Ukraine having continuing to be able to keep the lights on, continue to have functioning ATMs, a functioning credit card system, etc. What are the differences that contributed to that? Um, well, um, what are the differences? Well, the 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 Ukraine. I'm going to talk about Ukraine. It was they're very confident. And they're really well united. Like whatever decision the the, the, the president of the country makes is is very well supported by by everyone. And I think uh, I'm very impressed by his leadership and how he. I think he's 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 a hero, <laughs> literally. He he's the one who who put who was able to to gather everybody together as a community and. Um, and and it's a it's a, it's a community war and um, and uh, they they uh, there is a lot of unity in in the meantime in Venezuela there is no unity at all there is it's a lot of factions there is within within the different groups fighting between themselves but uh, Ukraine is is very different there is a lot of unity and a lot of uh, 
communality. Uh, I, I see people, for example, um, volunteers taking food to the front lines, and uh, including myself, uh, um, taking taking picking up wounded soldiers, using their cars, their their own cars, their own personal cars to go and and deliver supplies. They're living, they're living, they're delivering anything that the people on the front lines may need. There is no such a thing. So I want to I pivot now back to the story. I want to pivot to your story. After being at the border, um, working with refugees, you then went in with a relief convoy into Ukraine proper. Tell us more about, uh, about that trip and what you wound up doing inside I'm Ukraine. Uh-huh. Go ahead, please. Yes, first to Kiev, um, to Lviv, I'm sorry. And I made a lot of connections when I was at the border because we were sending supplies and then to to different places and including a Christian church. And then I connected with a pastor, one of the pastors of that church. So when I, fi- when I finished my work in, in at the border, I, I, I decided to phone that pastor and I asked him if uh, I could be of any use. And of course, he said, come right away. Of course, I also made, I had made connections for convoys to go to his church. So I was able to send a couple of two, three or four convoys that, that were coming with donations from Europe. So I was welcome there basically because I I. I could be of help, and, and I and I was a contact person for convoys to come into their into their warehouse. And then you stayed there in Ukraine for how long? I was there for a total of six weeks. And what were you doing? Seven weeks. I'm sorry. Well, in in the first week and a half, I was in at the border helping refugees cross the border, and then for the next two weeks, a uh, week and a half. I'm sorry. Uh, I was uh, two weeks. I was in Lviv helping, uh, teaching, making water filters and um, and emergency rocket stops, uh, teaching people how to make them, and uh, helping also with the with the, with uh, with the convoys, um, uh, helping them sort through because uh, we would divide, for example, the medicines for hospitals and the medicines for trauma for people in the front lines, because they all, all came in different boxes, so we needed to sort through according to the need that people had in, in inside. So food, children's, and depending on the requests we were getting, um, like field food, also we were, people were donating camping supplies, which they would go to the front lines. And, and medicine, trauma medicine. And since I have a background in in, in medics, in, in, in rescue, I knew what to send. Oh, I sort of have knowledge of what, what to sort through. So I prepared, the, I helped uh, guiding them to prepare the, 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 the delivery packages to the soldiers or the, or the volunteers that would come to pick them up. In where you were... And then, mm-hmm, go ahead. And then, and then I moved to Kiev. And in Kiev, was, uh, I, I, was, I was connected with a search and rescue group uh, of a Baptist church. And they were basically helping people escape uh, from occupied territories. And 
they were delivering supplies to different places like Chernobyl, Bucha, and, and uh, also helping. We, we, we built a bomb shelter in case we were bombed, and they were also providing supplies to orphanages. They are still, they're still doing that. What was the risk of violence there where you were? Well, not well. Different, different. The only risk of of violence was the missile attacks that that happened, uh, and and uh, unfortunately, the, the 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 missiles are quite inaccurate, and uh, and so they end up hitting the wrong places. Uh, like they were on my last day when I was leaving. Um, they were supposed to hit. I think they were planning to hit a bridge, but they 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 destroyed seven houses, four houses instead. Hmm. Seven people died. Wow. What was it like? Were people going? Were some people just trying to go around their normal day? Were were people staffing the stores? Were people going to their offices and working, or was everything shut down and nothing happening? What was it like? <laughs> Well, everything, uh, people try to, in, in Lviv, people try to live a normal life. And uh, the, the people that had work or that still have work, they would go to work as, as normal as they could be. And there were people also that were unemployed and quite a few of them because their business closed down, shut down. And they were not selling things, especially in the agriculture. There's a lot of uh, agricultural there. There and that 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 seems to be in a very slow, uh, in this in this very slow predicament, and um, but uh, in general they try to live a normal life and live it, in spite of the fact that uh, that uh, sirens kept going off constantly and uh, at least when when I was there we suffered uh, three missile attacks. How did you prepare for the physical danger yourself? Uh, the the risk of a missile. Did you sleep in the basement? What what did you do? No, no, I I slept in a normal uh, apartment building. Uh, there's no, there's only one that I visited. Only one bomb shelter in in the whole city, I think, and uh, it was far away. So when the sirens came, you just hoped that you didn't didn't get struck by a missile. One, but uh, they came close though because I lived very very close by. A, a very strategic uh, place that I thought this is, I was almost certain that uh, it was going to be attacked, but never, never attacked. What was attacked was, was a place where I used to go shopping for supplies every day. Every day I would, I would go there either in the morning or in the afternoon to buy my supplies for, for, for building wood stoves or, or, or the things that I was doing. And one afternoon, a missile hit it, like within 50, 100 meters from where I used to go shopping. It's my understanding that although many people feared significant shortages in Ukraine, that the supply lines were actually working pretty well. What did you notice was widely available and what did you notice was in short supply? The... I noticed that supermarkets were, at the beginning, were quite packed with everything you needed. But slowly, slowly, you start seeing things disappearing from the shelves. But there was no panic shopping, no, not at all. Uh, 
uh, I will, it surprised me because I been in the United States and every time the tragedy is about to happen, people just running and buy everything, including whatever they can buy. But there, they were they were calm and, and there were no no panic shopping whatsoever. And I was <laughs> interestingly, I asked a lady and, says, and I asked her why uh, why she was not stocking up. And then she said, No, no, of course not. Other people may need them. <laughs> they need it. <laughs> so I, I surprised me their solidarity because you know if you if you, here in North America if you if if you see like twenty gallons of cup of water and the last water in 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 Walmart, somebody will come on a truck and put it in his pickup truck without thinking and the rest of the people. But they were like very even in that there were a lot there was a lot of solidarity. That's really beautiful. Was there anything that was in short supply that really surprised you? They rely a lot on water and bottled water. And I noticed that at the end, the bottled water was starting to disappear. And then uh, that's why I put a lot of emphasis on water filters. And uh, I think when I left, they started to listen to my emergency preparedness speech. Of, of making water filters or getting water filters. But they were, I think, I, I think they have an excess of confidence, especially in Lviv. Um, but I, when I went back to Lviv on my last days, I noticed that they were, they were starting to think that things were going to be rougher than expected. After spending time in basically an active war zone, or at least on the periphery of an active war zone, what lessons did you personally learn? What, what changes, uh, what, what decisions did you make or what changed for you personally based on what you learned there? Nothing really changed as far as me. I think it's just, everything was, a, I feel reaffirmed that, um, that, uh, on, on how well I was prepared. Because practically everything that I had with me was u- was used, and uh, um, I kept it like um, uh, you know you you train all your life up for this, and uh, I was uh, so I'll say I was well prepared, and I I didn't know how well prepared I was until I was in a situation situation in which I needed to be well prepared. Yeah. Uh, my quick run back had everything I needed, and when I needed it, my my back my backpack with camping gear and, and emergency supplies were ready. My medical supplies were ready. So um, um, I think, I, as you know, as you know me, I have been prepared for this for a long time. So I was I was able to see to experience that uh, I've done uh, all these preparations had. In, at least in Ukraine, paid off. Did you? So that was your experience, but the normal mm-hmm. person, right, the average person, isn't uh, doesn't think about preparedness in the way that you, someone who's involved in disaster relief, does. So, were people that you observed were they facing hardship because they weren't prepared, and? they were facing genuine hardship or genuine shortages, or did you just feel better because you were prepared? 
Uh, I think both of them, they they were just uh, not prepared. Like, uh, for example, some of my students that 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 I that I taught survival skills and and medical skills, none of them taught that have like any idea that they will be in that situation. So there was not uh, not. There was lack of insight on their part that one day they would face a situation like they were facing, and suddenly they had to, they were put into that situation. Uh, so um, I think, I, I, I think the big difference is is that uh, they were too confident. Some people were too confident that the situation in Ukraine will not get the way it got. Excess of confidence. And that's usually what happens in, in, in the lack of emergency preparedness. People just think nothing nothing will happen to them. That they're harm they're not in harm's way. I think that's a good place to pivot to the next part of our discussion, which has a few unexpected surprises. You had a long planned uh, vacation slash adventure trip in North America. So you left Ukraine, and then what happened? Well, I um, I had bought a bike in Canada, and, and by bike and you mean the motorcycle? Person that, a motorcycle, yes. And my plan was to my commitment actually was to come and pick it up in September, in May, because um, I I had made that commitment. So uh, the main reason why I had to return was because I had made a commitment to pick up my bike my motorcycle and I would take it down to Houston and eventually to Venezuela. So I took uh, three weeks off Ukraine and I came to pick up my bike. So I was able to, to ride my bike from, uh, from, uh, from Alberta, Canada to, to Houston. So, but I also did some bike riding in near the Alaskan border. So you, with a friend. you spent some time motorcycling near Alaska and then you, rode down through the United States. Last week, you happened to be passing through Texas. So tell us that story. Okay. Well, I was coming and uh, I, I, I rode through, through several states. Uh, it was cold in, in, in Colorado and Utah, and, yeah, Utah, I think, and snowing. So I had to ride my bike under snowy conditions. And then suddenly, I, as I started driving south and south, south, it's starting to get warmer and warmer. Now it's heating temperatures here down in Texas, very, very hot. But on my last uh, week, I decided to slow down because I estimated that I was going to 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 come down during this uh, long weekend. So I was not riding as many hours per day. So one day um, when I made it to El Paso, Texas, I decided to instead of taking the main highway, I would take the south route. Uh, so it would, it would take me one day longer to make it to Houston, but I thought it would be nice to, to be in a, I didn't have to rush. So I was coming, I was coming through the south to the, almost the, the, roads along the El Paso border, the Texas border. And uh, and then uh, one day I was planning to 
uh, and my second day I was planning to sleep in the city of Uvalde. Um, I even had found a couple of motels where I was thinking that I would stay. So, but but because I was going very slow, I, I one day I I, I wasted six, four or five six hours here and there. So so I I didn't make it to Uvalde. I was like four or five hours away from from it. So, but I and that day I uh, when 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 the tragedy of the massacre of Uvalde happened, I was. I was not that far, although I was far away, um, really far, five, six, seven hours away from from Uvalde, and um, and then I started. I I um, so one day when one morning I think it was mid afternoon in the morning, I saw a lot of cars rushing by. Uh, what got me attention was that there were two school buses rushing. Like the buses were going at least at least seventy five miles per hour, and then you never see a bus, a school bus, riding at seventy five miles per hour. And I thought that's odd. And two school buses, like they looked like almost like they were racing. And I thought that's that's very strange. And then after that, I saw a couple of police cars and a couple of uh, border patrol cars rushing, and then um, then couple of ambulances, a fire truck, and and people, and a bunch of different cars just rushing by by me, and uh, and so I I thought, oops, America is under attack. Was that's what I thought? <laughs> uh, no, seriously, because so unusual. You know, I was there was hardly any cars there, and suddenly see all these people rushing, and even an helicopter rushing. In, Flying and thought, no, this is because it felt like I was in the Ukraine again. Maybe when, President Putin when, when decided was, to push the button and and send send the missiles this way. This way, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought. And we we definitely. You, you probably I, didn't like, have, have any no cell phone doubts. signal out there. You probably couldn't couldn't like. No, 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 nothing, nothing. So I I was like, for sure, for certain, America has been attacked. Like, that's my. I was I was absolutely certain that that had happened. Because you know what are the odds of in an empty highway, you know, suddenly seeing school buses? And even it was funny because one guy was driving his car. I don't know what happened to his car, but he was a very well dressed guy. And then and he was in the middle of the highway waving to get a ride. Of course, I didn't. I didn't stop because I thought you know you don't pick up somebody in the middle of the desert. <laughs> The police picked him up, though. I saw that the, the car behind me uh, came and gave him a ride. But I thought it was odd that to see somebody like asking for help in the middle of the desert. And, and it was not an immigrant, you know, that you think this person, you know, just crossed, the, crossed into Mexico or into the United States. It was somebody that was well dressed. And I, I kept thinking, no, this is this is not right. This is it didn't feel right at all seeing so many cars passing by me, rushing by me. And so but I'm taking some emergency supplies to my team in Ukraine. So I'm thinking maybe I have to stay here in the United States for a long time. <laughs> And uh, and uh, camp here, so I was even thinking, well, I have this, and then I start to identify places where I could camp. Or there's a lot of abandoned houses in the desert, uh, or camper campings, and I said, well, I could have a shelter here. I could. So I was actually planning to to stay for a long time, just in case we we were United States had been attacked. 
when I got the internet, I realized then that it was in the city that I was supposed to go the next day had been had suffered the, the massacre. When did you arrive then in Uvalde? I arrived uh, the day, day and a half after the massacre. What was it like? What did you experience there? Well, I, 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 I decided to, that I was going to go and just hang around and talk to people and be supportive to people. And so I intentionally drove there uh, to stop in the city of Uvalde. I did. I, and there was no organized counseling. You could just go to the main, to, they had two main shrines for people mourning. So just hanging around there, you always, the whole day, day and a half, or almost two days I was there, you, you always find somebody because it's a small community. So there was always somebody hurting. So I would come and talk to them and just share them. And then, but what was interesting was that um, for me, it was that uh, I would share with them that I was coming from Ukraine, servicing in the Ukraine. And they immediately like connected with me. Like there was an immediate connection with all the people that I was talking to about about their tragedy and, and what I had gone through. So I was, I guess my, my, my background, my recent background helped a lot. Uh, uh, and uh, if I can share experience with, with it, that I had a, on my blog, the last day that I'm sharing on my blog, the last day I was sitting, uh, when I, just in the afternoon, I was, uh, wow. Was, yeah, that was two days ago. Two days, two, 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 two afternoons ago, I was sitting in the, in the, in the crisis. Play uh, on and get guidance. And so I, that's where I was the last day. And so I was sitting there having my lunch. I didn't want to talk. Like I was so tired. And I went as far as I could from 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 people. So I sat by myself on a table, and then and then a man uh, came in and sat by me. And I had my Ukrainian hat, Ukrainian uh, shirt. So he said uh, he was interested, and I said, and, and he asked me why why did you come? Like why did you choose? Come, like you're not from here. Why did? And then I said, well, I decided to come and be supportive. And then, and then I start talking to him about my, about Ukraine, and then and then I start talking to him about the massacre of Bucha, but you know I haven't cried. I really haven't cried, remembering what I saw in Bucha, and then suddenly, when I I don't know, just as I was talking, I broke down in tears. I mean, I was crying <laughs> when I remember we we about what I had seen in, in, in Bucha and but also Chernobyl and, and Irpin. Uh, I hadn't ha- I really hadn't had time to process what I've seen in, in, in the Ukraine. And so the guy was very nice to me. He he he, he was very supportive. He started like uh, talking to me and um, it felt really good when I when I was talking to him. Um, so but I hadn't I hadn't asked him who he was. And 
me and I share my story. And because I share my story, I, my story, I, I, I start crying. You know? I guess I haven't processed everything what I've seen in Ukraine. And so but he was very supportive. He was, a, 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 he had, he shared, we share with, we shared our same principles and Christian faith. So he, he was incredibly supportive. And then at the end, I said, when I was starting to feel much better, uh, I, I asked him, who are you? What are you what, and what are you doing here? So I turned things around asking him. And then he told me that he was the, the former uh, school principal of the school where the massacre had taken place. He had gone out of that school for another school like just recently. And he said that the two teachers were very close to him, very close friends. Every student that was there, so and he was almost crying. And uh, but you know something, it's amazing. This this guy, I thought, with so much grief and so much pain, is sharing with me, is is encouraging me. And I guess God, God is the way God uses people. He was using a broken man to help another gro- broken man. That's how God operates. I thought, and um, so we said goodbye. And, uh, we both were at the end, of course. We both we both had tears in our eyes. Wow, what a story! In the midst of tremendous evil and suffering, it brings into great relief and, and highlights good and kind kindness of strangers, the solidarity of a community, and it's always such that painful combination of of the grief of of horror and of evil mixed with neighbors, loving neighbors, people encouraging one another. And so even in the midst of great evil, you see good, right? You see love expressed in the middle of it. Yeah, definitely. I saw I saw a lot of... Uh, it's interesting that if there is commonality between, between Ukraine and... and... Um, and, um, and, uh, and Texas... No. It was that uh, I saw, I saw humanity. I saw, I saw people with faith supporting each other. I saw people just uh, solidarity, tremendous amount of solidarity, and uh, and then I, I I felt almost like it's a, it's a, if I was in Ukraine when I see a lot of evil, where I saw a lot of evil, lots of it. But at the same time, a lot of human kindness, lots of it. So you could see good and evil. I well, I I saw good and evil in two places, in within the period of, of a month, and that gives me absolute confidence that God does care. Because even when there is when there is evil, there is abundance of grace and love. Amen. So now you are um, you're shipping your motorcycle and you're going to be heading back to Ukraine. Uh, so as you go forward, going back to Ukraine, does your mission look similar to what it did before? Well, I'm not sure where my team is right now or where they've been deployed. Um, they, I know they work because they because originally they were working north of Kiev, but now that the 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 the, the activities have taken 
place in the east. I don't really. I know they were when I left. They were starting to plan, doing the planning for for getting involved in in the occupied territories on the west. Um, but I don't have much contact with them. They know. I told them I'm coming back, and I told them I will be coming and help with training on on preparedness and emergency survival. So, uh, but I haven't. I, I really don't know where I'm going to be deployed, depending where the team is. Um, it could be Kharkiv, it could be married people, but no, not on the cities. No, not we. We they usually go near, but near where the action is taking place, and they make themselves available for refugees or or people in need of assistance. Uh, so they are behind the. They they don't they all and sometimes I I hear that they have gone behind the lines. To rescue people, so they're very protective of me, so they wouldn't let me go behind the lines. I had intended to draw out one more story from you, and it has <laughs> to do with the interaction between two areas, both in crisis zones. So, while you have been in Ukraine, you've continued to be working and involved in Christian ministry in prisons all across Venezuela. I think we can talk about that now. Um, and <laughs> so there's been this amazing juxtaposition where, and, and again, if I if I share any details that, that we shouldn't share, then of course, just let me know. But over the last couple of years, one of the things that has happened remarkably with some of your work and, and uh, the things that we've been involved in is that opportunities for Christian ministry have opened up again in many Venezuelan prisons. And so you've been involved in coordinating and organizing uh, a more formalized uh, ministry effort in in these prisons. And so <laughs> I've seen pictures of, uh, of of prisoners in Venezuela gathering together to pray for those in Ukraine. And you've shared with Ukrainians, and they're turning around and seeking to be uh, an encouragement and pray for those in Venezuela. And I just think that's a remarkable. Um, story. Uh, share a little bit about that, please. Well, the, uh, we had definitely um, been blessed, our ministry in Venezuela. Um, we have access to, to six, seven penitentiaries now. And, uh, we, and uh, the churches that we have encountered are, are completely alive, like one church has 3,400 members, another one has 2,000, over 2,000. There is 38 churches that we now support indirectly, and also we're doing the gardening projects there. So we have a, we have a lot of input and, uh, and a lot of presence in different prisons now, so we are now currently serving to almost 12,000 inmates, and, uh, and we have... Uh, we intend to we go there every three three to two to three months visiting all the prisons supervising our garden projects we provide employment to a, probably at least uh, three four hundred inmates in our gardens so the ministry has grown considerably now uh, I hope it to go back uh, when I when I come back from Ukraine in, in August I'll 
and and just continue supporting the, the, the ministry, the prison ministry. One of the things that happened was they said, when I, I told them, because we had a board of directors that I would go, so the inmates had uh, vigils and, 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 and they, they took my cause as their cause. And so there were like an outpouring of, of, of hundreds, thousands of people praying for me. And they will send me pictures of, of their prayer meetings. And literally, you see five, seven hundred thousand inmates uh, gathering in, in, in soccer fields, baseball fields, um, basketball courts, and, and saying, Neri, Pastor Neri, they call me Pastor Neri, Pastor Neri, we're praying for you every day. So it was basically this, my, my mission brought a lot of un, unity in, in, in the prison ministry and a cause. So they, they're very supportive of what I'm doing in Ukraine. And yeah. of course, when I show pictures of the of the inmates in, in Ukraine and all of them praying for me, people are really, really encouraging. Wonderful. I thank you for coming on and, and sharing your stories. And it's my hope that we can take the lessons and be prepared for ourselves for some of these horrific um, disaster scenarios that you've described. And most importantly, so that we can be on a solid foundation to be able to help others who may not be prepared when, when this happens. And whether we face the disaster of the loss of a child or the loss of a friend in a, in a, a horrific massacre, or whether we face a, a war zone or an economic collapse, um, we want to be prepared to be positioned so that we can help our community and be in solidar solidarity with those around us. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I appreciate that, uh, Josh. My pleasure. Thank you for coming Take on. Care. And that brings us to the end of today's interview. If you are interested in more of the adventures of today's guest, you can find more information at creativephilanthropy.blog. Creativephilanthropy.blog. Um, it's been a great... Uh, you can keep up, with, uh, keep up with his writings there, with his travels there, etc. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for listening. Thank you so much for, for uh, contributing. By the way, you'll notice long-time listeners of the show know that from time to time I've done various fundraising things. I've reported on some of the stuff happening in Venezuela. I've often taken some of the old episodes off of the feed and been somewhat cagey with details and whatnot, simply because of uh, the sensitivity of it. But this audience has single-handedly uh, done a tremendous amount of work uh, last year, or I guess two years ago, I raised a significant amount of money. We purchased a uh, truck um, and uh, a truck and some other equipment for uh, some of the the uh, relief workers and missionaries and relief workers working on the border. We've taken in significant amounts of food into uh, Venezuela. Also started, you heard him allude to the garden projects, uh, have a significant number of garden projects. And I've actually, it's opened up to be able to have a platform to do far more than we thought in the past. So at this point in time, we can actually do some of the work there in the prisons, uh, can meet officially with permission of some of the officials, etc. So it's been a great uh, a very productive time and i want to thank you for all of your involvement in that um, thankfully i think most of us don't live in these disaster zones um, i think thankfully um, it's not a deep impact to on a daily basis to most of our lives but we still need to learn from those who are going through them and um, may our hearts be touched and may we have opportunities to minister to those who are in need open our wallets when possible um, etc thank you for listening and i'll be back with you soon